Well, what I do, what I've been doing with my colleague Brian Mapping for more than 30 years, is to try and show on television what it's like inside the room and the really big political decisions are made. Top secret meetings when the presidents and prime ministers meet. So when we start work on a series, the first thing we do is to try and find out what those big political decisions are. And that's more difficult than you think because they're usually secret meetings that happen only in private, only the people there knew about them. So we have to find out what the meetings were, who was at them, what was said. Um, we do this by trying to talk to people first off the record, completely off the record, with the tape recorder, um, finding out the stories, putting it all together. And we only go back to film after a year of research. Um, ideally, we should know exactly what we want before we actually go into film. But we talk to the, generally we talk to the aides, the second ranks, the junior ministers. Uh, the last stage is getting the top politicians, the presidents and the prime ministers to appear. Um, I suppose that's the hardest in the end. Um, to get them, well, you really have to pick your right moment. As John said, um, our first series was called The Second Russian Revolution. We made it in. We were commissioned in 1998 when Mikhail Gorbachev was president of the Soviet Union, which was still uh, a pretty repressive place. Um, when I went, finally met my first member of the ruling Politburo, I said to him, can you tell me about the Politburo that selected Gorbachev? You know, tell me like a story, like you went home and told your wife that evening. And a look of such complete horror passed on his face that the idea of sharing with his wife what happened to the <laughs> um, that I almost gave up right there. But, um, but we, in that case, we really had picked the right moment. John was about this because he was there as well for the FT. Um, Glasnost was wonderful. That Gorbachev's policy of Glasnost was happening. Things got more and more open. Um, and by the time we came to film a year later, uh, the Politburo members were, like all the rules were off, and they were telling you things that British cabinet ministers wouldn't dream of telling. Uh, and it was a very serious thing. Um, so I think I'll start with the, the short extract from that. It was, it's a scene in 1991. Gorbachev is trying to bring in gradual reform to save the Soviet Union. And he's discussing with his key advisor how to deal with a huge demo a demo of supporters of the much more radical Boris Yeltsin right outside his criminal window. I love that bit because well, it's very <laughs> rare that you see a top politician, particularly one still in office, who says, I got it wrong. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you, what he's saying is his mistake was that he wasn't repressive enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what happened was that he did withdraw his troops, it was a victory for Yeltsin, and a few months later Yeltsin pushed him out. But still. Um, so, um, leaving aside for the minute whether they're good television, you're going to have to judge that yourself. Um, are they good histories? Uh, well, let me tell you, start by telling you why I think what what's good and what's bad about them. Um, what they're not, what I do is show how decisions are made, what happens inside these rooms. Not much good at explaining why. Uh, analyzing why. That's uh, probably probably better done by books. 
Um, we film only those who took part in the top meetings. Absolutely no academics, no pundits. We ask them what happened. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is to pre present some evidence. Evidence of the men, evidence what they told you happened, evidence so that um, you, the viewer, and the pundits and the politicians, can draw their own conclusions. Um, so we have to we have to interview only a really limited number of people. I mean, there are not a lot of people in those rooms, and we have to get them. Um, when we have a really big character, and we haven't got him, it's a problem, and it's a problem that we have to deal with by getting the archive. And that's why an archive researcher is probably as important a person on the team as the rest of us. Um, they have to find the right archive. On our Watergate series in 1992, the main villain of the piece, President Richard Nixon, refused to give us an interview. We were very fortunate. Soon after that, he died. And so nobody knew we failed. Um, and <laughs> we persuaded David Frost to give us access to the 25 hours of interview that he did for his Frost-Nixon. So we actually got really good Nixon interview filmed right after he was president. It would have been much better than our 20 years later interview. So that one worked. Um, but actually, you know, we also, we can't cover everything. I mean, the essence of what we do is to pick some events and go into them in detail, which means that we can't do all events. Um, and sometimes uh, a reasonably important character gets written out because he didn't give us an interview. Um, for example, in this Russian series, going out tomorrow night at 9 o'clock on BBC2. <laughs> uh, in this Russian series, um, Tony Blair didn't give us an interview. I mean, Tony Blair was um, like the first Western leader to take Putin seriously. He went to see him when he was appointed acting president, even before he was elected. He spent a lot of time because Tony Blair saw that he was going to be a big player. Uh, and their relationship was very good until it went sour when Tony Blair refused to extradite another guy that Putin wanted. So Tony Blair said no because he's now the Middle East peace negotiator and he works for the quartet, of which one of the powers in the quartet is Russia. And so he said, well, Putin's my boss and I can't say bad things about him, so I can't be in the series. So we dropped that story. I mean, actually, the Americans are the main players and we could drop Tony Blair and sort of, you know, by refusing to give us an interview wrote himself out of history, <laughs> at least my history. Um, so, um, but, when, but in our histories, if you get the right people, all the right people telling the story, um, I think nothing beats it. You get uh, the man telling the story and you get a chance to observe the man and make your judgment of him while he's telling it to you. Um, so here's an example from our series, Fall of Lost Beach. Um, it takes place in uh, 1999, when NATO started its bombing campaign to stop the Serbs led by Milosevic, ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. Um, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and the other NATO leaders thought that Milosevic um, should just give in after a little bit of bombing. But in fact, this extract takes place three weeks into the bombing campaign, which shows no signs of giving in. And in Europe, public opinion is hardening against the war. A lot of people. 
said, okay, so I said, watch with Benton. Well, when he said, um, I've got to get this through Congress, and in Congress there are a lot of people not of my party, not of my persuasion, you suddenly realize this is right after Monica Lewinsky. And, um, and the Congress had just tried to impeach him, and he would never be able to get a, a real proper war through Congress, and that's what he's thinking. Um, but Tony Blair is even more interesting because I'm about stuff on Iraq. Um, now, he's talking about the Kosovo War in 1999, um, but we filmed him. You can see he's still Prime Minister, if you notice, because he's in the cabinet room. Um, and, um, but it, we filmed him in 2002, which was actually in the run up to the war in Iraq. And I, this is my imagination, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I can see him thinking. Um, in Kosovo, Everybody said I was wrong. I persisted. I was right. We got rid of all of it. Now the war in Iraq. Everybody thinks uh, there's big demos against me. Everybody thinks I shouldn't do it. But I'm going to persist and I'll be right in the end. So maybe it's my imagination. Um, okay. So why do the top politicians agree to take part? Um, I'm going to say something a bit controversial. I think most politicians are reasonable men. <laughs> now, uh, now, I mean, there are exceptions. I have filmed some that I've lost, which, but um, by, by that I mean that they do things for good reasons, um, and they come. They they want you. They want history to understand the reasons that they did things. So they want to get what they did on record. But but first, you have to convince them of a couple of things. The first thing they always ask is who else is doing it. Uh, they want to, if if it's everyone's doing it and it's going to be done, they want to be sure that it, the story's not told just for their opponent's spin. Um, but there are other ones as well. Um, you have to persuade them there's going to be a really big audience um, because it's really it's quite a lot of trouble answering our rather detailed questions. What exactly did you say to your husband? Um, and what did he say back? I mean, you have to look at your notes, you have to look at your diaries, and you have to prepare. Um, so it's got to be worth it. Um, well, our series broke us on the BBC, but also around the world. And that's actually by necessity, because the BBC can only afford to pay half. Because, because they take a long time, they cost a lot of money. Because they take a long time. Um, so, um, we have to get broadcasters around the world, and that lets us say, well, it's not going to have a British bias because it's got to go out on Al Jazeera and on the French and for the Americans, so we have to work very hard to make it multi-sided. Um, but I can say we do have one bias, um, and it's not between countries, it's not between left and right, <coughs> probably not even between goodies and baddies. Um, the people who get the most time and the most gets the viewer on their side are the ones who tell take the trouble to tell their stories really well. So the people who are good storytellers always win. And that's I think you can see a bit of that in this next extract. Now this this is it's longer than the others and it's absolutely my favourite bit, I think, from all my series. Um, it's from our first Yugoslavia series, The Death of Yugoslavia. Um, and what it is, it has footage of a real plot to carry out a coup 
filmed by the Coupons themselves. Um, takes place in 1991. Yugoslavia is still a federation, the Federation of Six Republics. Slovan Milosevic is president of Serbia, the biggest. Um, the federation is run by a council of one member from each republic. See why I fell apart, it's all rather complicated. The federation was run by a council with one member from each republic, and the Serb chairman was Milosevic's deputy, Bora Jovic. Now, watch Jovic, he's the key to this one. Goosebumps. Um, um, so how did we get it? I mean, actually, the Serbs showed it on television in a program that was called Who Destroyed Yugoslavia? I wanted to show that everything was the Croats' fault. But, but we needed all of the Russians in order to make something like that. Um, and it was the Serb, Boryovic, who, who got us the Russians and gave us the interview that made sense of it. Again, this is my conjecture. I think he was fed up with Milosevic getting all the credit. Um, he thought, well, um, everybody ought to see what a great tactician he was. So, so he helped us. And he helped us a lot. He gave us six hours of interviews talking about all the you know, amazing things that Milosevic set up to. Um, so, anyway, I mean, to me, it, it is, it's an amazing thing to see that in a film um, and to have the interviews that explain it. But I have to tell you that when our BBC executive first saw this, that's the Fraser, um, and he said um, it was rebarbative, a, a word that neither Brian nor the director, Alice McQueen, nor I knew what it meant, but we looked it up when he left. And we, knew it was, we knew it wasn't very good. It meant so difficult that it's repulsive. Uh, which meant that, you know, we hadn't got it right yet. Uh, and what saved it was getting that chap to Bukowski, the fat one in the white sweater, uh, who was such a good storyteller that he kind of held your hand and took you through it, and, and so you could understand what was going on. So, so I mean, those are the best moments when, when you're lucky enough to get some really unique footage and you get the archive, you get the archive film, but you also get um, the interviews that explain to you exactly what's going on from the people who are there. Um, and it doesn't have to be as dramatic a moment as when there's a coup. Um, the next bit I'm going to show you, which is from the Putin series, and you can see what it's tomorrow night. You got it, yes. It shows um, the, the moments right after 9-11 when uh, Putin's Russia and Bush's America were really close. I mean, Putin was very helpful in the Afghanistan war after 9-11. Uh, and they were very close, and it ended up with Bush going on a state visit to Moscow, which is where we come in. So, I mean, thank God for Sergei Ivanov. I mean, we had a very sticky time in Russia. It was not easy to get interviews with the top Russians. I mean, one thing, Putin's government has had the same ministers in power the whole time, so there wasn't anybody out or retired. They, they, all, they all needed his permission. And, um, Sergei Ivanov was our first, and he actually gave us an off-the-record interview, and he told us the story of the ballet. So we beat our film paper about the head until he actually got the film from the <laughs> Agnes Studios. Um, and 
we looked at the film, uh, so that when we went to talk to Condi, we were able to show her the film, which of course kind of helped remind her of memory. Uh, and that bit about Ushaila, you know, she saw him sitting there and she could say, oh God, he didn't like <laughs> So it's quite a good example of, you know, the, story, the research led us to the film and the film led us to get a better interview afterwards. And it's fun, and it also does, I mean, it really does show you just how well the Americans and Russians were getting on. Sergei Ivanov, by the way, is an old KGB general. He was higher in the KGB than Putin. Uh, and I can kind of see him doing his kind of grooming techniques in Kondi. <laughs> um, she certainly talks about him very warmly. <laughs> um, so, okay, well, but another, but I mean, that's, that's when it's all working great. Um, the more usual is you've heard a good story, you've got the people who'll tell it, but you don't have anything like the film. Um, and you've got to use it because it's such a good story and it's pivotal. Um, so this bit um, is from program three of the Russian series, which is not until the 2nd of February. Um, and it, um, one of the people in it, Ambassador Bill Burns, told us this this story, which is a scoop. It's about how, I mean, they went from the good relations there to almost going to war in Georgia in August 2008. And this is the moment where um, Georgia, where America and Russia really relations soured over Georgia. Good story, no picture. So I suppose the answer is when you don't have any cheat. <laughs> you may be surprised to know that in that car driving along was not Congress. <laughs> uh, and that meeting of the National Security Council was another one where they were all shaking hands. But I mean we end, you, you endlessly debate about what you can use and what you can't lose. And what you have to do is create the sense of being there. And I think the directors have done a really good job. I think I, sh I should stop. I've got a couple more, but I think we should we should stop and let the rest of you talk. Yeah.